You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Thanks for joining us for this Viva podcast. Today we'll be discussing implant cementation. Our guest is Dr. Chad Duplantis, a clinical consultant for Glidewell Laboratories and AMD Lasers. He serves as a key opinion leader for several dental corporations, and Dr. Duplantis has always had an interest in high-tech dentistry and has been incorporating CAD-CAM technology in his practice since 2004. Dr. Duplantis, it's a pleasure to have you on Dental Talk. Well, thank you very much, Phil. It's an honor to be back. Yeah, so uh, with implants going crazy these days in the in the dental space, uh, I guess it's pretty important to use the right implant cement. So we'll be talking a little bit about that today. Um, to begin, tell us what you think are the most important features for an implant cement. We've gone back and forth between screw retained and cement retained, and I've actually, you know, with some of the cements that are on the market today, I've gone back mainly to, to cement retained for a number of reasons. But I think that uh, one of the biggest features for implant cements is that it needs to be not only biocompatible, which is a big trigger word in dentistry right now, but it needs to be bio-friendly. So I want a cement that no matter how hard we try, there's always the possibility of leaving a little bit behind. And I want a cement that I feel confident if there's, you know, a little fleck of cement behind that it's not going to be an irritant to the tissue. So I think bio-friendliness, which is kind of a term that I, I guess I've come up with on my own, is is the most important key feature of, of an implant cement. Right. So... Based on using cement to place the implant versus screw retain, which you talked about, obviously there's indications for both. Sure. Um, when using a cement, we do have to be careful of peri-implantitis, right? I mean, that's a big issue. So maybe, Absolutely. Yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about that, the prevalence of it, um, and how these features play into that. Okay, so you put me on the spot. I think that the prevalence of periimplantitis has decreased dramatically over the past several years with uh, the, the increased usage of custom abutments. With custom abutments, we're able to control our cement line. So periimplantitis used to be a lot more prevalent than it is nowadays. However, um, no matter how well you control the cement line of the restoration to abutment interface, uh, you're always going to have a little bit left behind, or there could always be a small micro gap that could cause irritation to the tissue. So as far as the, the prevalence, all I could tell you is that it's greatly decreased with custom abutments, but it's, you know, I, I think periimplantitis is still something to be fearful of. Right. Because so, we do not want our abutments to, our implants to fail. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, and that is something to be really concerned about. So with, the cement being biofriendly, and I, I like that term. I haven't heard that term, so it, it sounds like you coined a new one, and there's a lot of buzzwords <laughs> out there. But maybe you'll go down in history, Dr. Duplantis. <laughs> is, the, is the doctor behind biofriendly, the name biofriendly? Um, so tell us about that regarding uh, the intrinsic properties of cement. Like what makes a cement biofriendly? Why is that so important when cementing implants? You know, I think that... Uh a cement is made biofriendly, obviously by its ingredients. You want a cement that's going to be antibacterial so that there's a reduced risk of, of bacterial contamination of the sulcus. In addition to being antibacterial, you want a cement that's going to have a decent bond strength as well. So, you know, those two properties, you're trying to get those two to merge. Dr. Stephen Jeffries, in his definition, 
had stated that bioactivity was the property of a biomaterial to form an appetite-like material on its surface when immersed in a simulated bodily fluid for a period of time. And I think that that's the longest um, standing definition of bioactivity to my knowledge. Dr. Nate Lawson came in a few years later and opened up that definition a little bit further that incorporated several other materials. But in my opinion, I truly believe that that in order for a cement to be biofriendly, um, antibacterial properties is is the most important to me. Any cements that you're using in particular in your practice, um, other KOLs you're using successfully that that meet this criteria? Sure. The one that I'm using in my practice um, exclusively for implant restorations is uh, Ceramir Bioceramic Implant Cement. And we've been having great successes with it. I like to compare it to a glass ionomer because it does have uh, similar properties. However, one of the things that really attracted me to this cement is that it is completely resin-free. And that's really important because resin can be an irritant to tissue um, in certain instances. And it just so happens that in the past several years that I've been utilizing this cement in both the crown and bridge and the implant formulation, I've had a couple of patients that have had resin allergies. So it's been a really nice go-to um, exclusively for implants, but also a nice go-to for uh, crown and bridge applications as well. Right. So this particular cement is your go-to cement, certainly for implants. Um, Absolutely. Okay. This It's called Ceramir Implant Cement? Yeah, Ceramir Bioceramic Implant Cement. Okay. Is this a cement that's completely different than anything else that's out there? Are there other choices that clinicians can go to to achieve pretty much similar uh, characteristics as far as the physical properties and the clinical outcome? As far as the physical properties it's going to behave very similarly to a glass ionomer. However, as far as I know, it is the only quote-unquote bioceramic, bio-friendly, bioactive cement, whatever you want to call it, that is entirely resin-free. And it's also, um, instead of being glass ionomer-based, it's calcium aluminate-based, which adds to its antibacterial effects. And there's studies that have shown very minimal colony-forming units over a period of days as compared to resin-based cements and even glass ionomer cements. So it's a, uh, it's a really nice go-to for implants. Tell us a little bit about permanent versus temporary cement for implants. Or is that, does that even apply? What I always say with implants, and I, I lecture quite often on, on cementing implant restorations, is that when cementing implants, theoretically, anything is going to work as far as looting the re restoration to the abutment. Now, that doesn't mean that anything is going to be favorable long term if you leave any underneath the tissue. So... Um, as far as, as implant restorations are concerned, using a temporary cement um, theoretically would be fine because the abutments are so precision fit to the restorations that, that you're really just going to look for something with looting potential. So is it a bad thing to do? Not necessarily. Do I recommend it? Absolutely not, because you don't know how that temporary cement is going to behave if you leave any um, underneath the tissue or um, is it going to become an irritant over time? Whereas with Ceramir being resin-free and calcium aluminate-based, 
I feel extremely confident that if any is left behind, which almost inevitably some is going to be, that the tissue is not going to become irritated and you've greatly decreased your risk for periimplantitis. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, so regarding the actual company, which is Doxa, they make, yes. yeah, so they make this cement, but they also make a cement called Ceramere Crown and Bridge Cement. Is that different? To the implant cement, or, or if you're doing crown and bridge, do you not use the Ceramira implant cement and just stick with the crown and bridge cement? Tell us about that. As far as the exact properties of the cements, I would say that I, I would recommend utilizing the crown and bridge uh, for crown and bridge, and I would recommend utilizing the implant for implant restorations. I'll leave the rest of that question up to the manufacturer and, <laughs> and ask people to call tech support line because I do not know the exact formulations of each. Okay. But you However, have both you have both in your office. I, I do have both in my office, but prior to them coming out with the implant cement, um, which was just within the past year, I was utilizing Ceramere Crown and Bridge for implants. They're both resin free. They're both calcium aluminate based. Um, they both have excellent antibacterial effects. They're both quote unquote bioactive, biofriendly, bioceramic, whatever you want to call it. So so I, I do believe that the formulations are are very close to identical, if not identical. What I always tell the company is that I think there's so many choices in cementation that are available to to the everyday dentist. And I, I do consider myself an everyday dentist. Um, that I think that Ceramere implant is a must have for any dental office that restores implants. As far as Ceramere Crown and Bridge, I think it's a must-have, but I don't think you're going to utilize it as frequently. I think there's just too many other options on the market, and there's too many other demands for for non-implant-based restorations. So um, I do use Ceramere Crown and Bridge. I use it a lot less. As I stated before, I do have some patients with resin allergies, and it's the great go-to. But as far as the implant cement, it's it's truly the only one that I'm utilizing for implants in our practice right now, and um, I feel extremely confident in doing so. Yeah, yeah, I hear it's a game changer, the implant cement, and um, other KOLs have been on. We've done some podcasts in the past, and the cement is very well received by these these clinicians that are lecturing like you and practicing at the same time, et cetera. And also, Docs is a great company. I mean, they're, they made their name with um, Ceramir in the beginning, uh, and that was the only product they had. It was all based on stringent R&D, you know, to Absolutely. make a, yeah, to make a really biocompatible cement that is really important abroad, maybe more, more important out of the United States than in the United States, because a lot of dentists that practice in the U.S. assume that anything they purchase is biocompatible just by definition. Why would someone sell a product that's not? But then it became more evident how important it is. And this company really took off and dentists are now seeing the light with these biocompatible cements. And uh, they have a great R&D department. I actually met their PhD researcher at one of the shows recently, one of the dental shows. Um, so it's, she, she came along for the trip. They're from Sweden? Am I yes, Sweden. Yeah, Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. Really a great group of people. And just to reiterate, I think that the kicker with this cement that just amazes me because you know, and, and I keep going back to this and I apologize, but when you have a patient with resin allergy, it's virtually impossible to treat that patient in, in your regular dental practice. I mean, resin modified glass ionomer has resin in it. Right. And that's that's really another quote unquote bioactive, biofriendly cement. 
biocompatible cement as well. Um, but in a patient with resin allergy, they're going to possibly react to resin-modified glass ionomer. I think it's huge that Ceramir is 100% resin-free, um, and it does differentiate itself from the majority of the cements that we utilize in our daily practices. Mm-hmm. So, what's the, what's the allergy response to resin? What do you see clinically? You know, just really irritated tissue um, around the restoration. One of my patients uh, had a very severe reaction at a previous dentist and, and honestly thought she was going into anaphylaxis, which was, uh, which was really concerning. And that was one of her reasons for switching, not because the dentist did anything wrong, but it was just something that, uh, that was concerning to her that, that just she associated with that office and didn't want to go back. Um, but the majority of, of the resin irritations that I've seen are, are irritation of the gingival tissues around the restoration and on the surrounding tissues, not necessarily just at the gingival margin, but also onto the buccal mucosa, onto the tongue, um, and, you know, along the mucosa, along the alveolar ridge. Um, that's what I've seen in my practice. And that inflammation, obviously, could cause... Um a response that could jeopardize the health of that implant, I assume. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any inflammation could, could right. cause a response that would jeopardize the implant. And, you know, the majority of uh, the materials that we're utilizing nowadays, because we're utilizing mainly metal-free restorations, are very minimally allergenic as far as indirect restorations are concerned. And so uh, by process of elimination, it's very easy to to deduce that it's most likely the cement. If a patient experiences a resin allergy like that, how soon do you see it? And then what do you do once it's cemented in? You know, um, I, I would say that you'd see it within a matter of a day is, has been my, my experience. Um, and, you know, if it's there, you're, you're most likely cutting it off in most instances because you're not going to be able to tap off that, uh, that restoration. You're, you're going to end up having to cut it off. Mm, that's bad. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. All right. Well, um, you know, that's good to know. We have to know these things as practitioners. That's what it's all about. We're healthcare providers and, you know, we don't want to <clears throat> not know what the etiology is of some reaction when the data is out there. I don't know how much is published on resin allergies regarding cements and so forth. And, and again, I don't want to put you on the spot again about what the prevalence of, <laughs> of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very minimal as, as far as in my practice is concerned. I mean, it's right. a handful of patients, but I think as time goes on with more and more resins in dentistry, the prevalence is going to increase. Right. And if, if there's even a possibility of it and you have a big implant case or a small implant case, why take the risk? You know, and Absolutely. It's, always, it's always going to happen on, you know, your kid's principal of his high school or, you know, it's always going to be that patient where you want everything to go right. And these are the nightmares that could happen. So uh, thanks a lot, Dr. Duplantis, for a very insightful podcast again. And I hope that we can have you back soon on more. I hope so as well. Thank you very much.